Uh, my name is Larry Frick, and I work with uh, a mission agency called Go International. And I wanted to give a, a talk about uh, some of the, the clinical things that I think would be helpful for me. Uh, I've uh, kind of had a journey over the last 10, 12 years of being in private practice here in the United States, getting involved in short-term missions, now more longer-term with the mission agency. And so there have been, you know, as we come to a wonderful conference like G, uh, GMHC, we spend most of our time talking about medical missions at a conference like this, talking about the missions. And that is, you know, very appropriate because there's nowhere else where we're going to learn the things that we need to learn in missions than a place like this. And for most of the things that we learn on the medical side, we have lots of other resources for that. But there are some things that they never taught me in medical school, or if they did, they went over them so fast because I was never going to see those diseases that you know I felt really lost on. And so for some of those things, I think it is appropriate that we have some forums at a place like this to be able to talk about some of those. And so I don't come to this as the worm expert or the parasitologist or the infectious disease expert, but as someone who wanted to try to learn okay, what are some basics that I can learn that can be really helpful, especially in a mission setting where we won't have necessarily the labs and, and some of the diagnostic capabilities? What are the clinical things? There are some little clues that can help me in some of these things uh, to be a little more familiar. And the whole goal is to try to practice excellent medicine. Um, even if we're in a resource-limited setting, we want to do the very best we can for the patients we treat. And so my hope is that I can learn some things that will help me to do that and then to try to share some of those with you. So as, as we go through the talk, if you have questions, or especially if you have comments or things that will help the group uh, from your experience, there's a lot of experience in this room that goes way beyond mine, then we're definitely open to that because what we want to do is try to help us to all uh, be excellent. Uh, wanted to start uh, this morning, even though this is such a clinical talk, with just a, a, a real short uh, passage from Scripture because I think it has some some application to us, even in our, uh, our spiritual walk, and ties right into the, uh, the talk a little bit, as you'll see. John 15, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's kind of a, a great picture for us because most of the diseases we're going to be talking about this morning are parasites. And we think of parasites in a bad way, that the parasite is dependent on the host for life. And the truth is that Jesus was telling his disciples in John 15, I want you to be parasites, but in a good way. Because <laughs> I want you to depend on me. And whatever we're doing, whether we're here at home or we're overseas on the mission field, we need to depend on him. So let's uh, pray this morning, and then we'll get, get started with the talk. Lord, I uh, come to you this morning. I just thank you for the opportunity to share with people um, of a like mind that have such a desire to, to serve others and to serve um, your children uh, around the world and take the good news of life in you to, to others around the world. And I just pray that you help us as we do that. Help us to be parasites. Help us to stay connected to you. Um, you are vine. And uh, help us this morning to learn. Help us to be open to anything that you would teach us. Um, you're a great teacher, and we just want to learn from you. Uh, and you've uh, made this world. You've created this world. And uh, you have the answer to, 
with all the the sin sin and the illness that uh, we encounter, and we just want to learn from you and uh, trust you. We just ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Worms and the Medical Missionary, it's kind of a catchy title, and it, um, we're going to talk about not just worms, primarily these are worms, but also some other parasitic illnesses that we come across. We're not going to talk about every kind of worm, there's tons, we could talk all day about that, we can take long courses just on worms, but we want to just try to hit some of the common things and some common concepts that will help us to do a better job when we take care of patients, uh, whether we're serving in a short-term setting or a long-term setting. We're going to start with uh, the, the ones that we kind of think of commonly as worms, the intestinal nematodes, and there are many different ones. These are among the more common, the round worms, hook worms, whip worm. Uh, we'll touch on strongyloides a bit, and then uh, just a little bit on pinworm. Round worms. And... Uh, not something we think about a lot in our patients. Uh, we're seeing patients here in, in, in the U.S., but 1.3 billion cases worldwide, so it's actually a huge problem, and estimates of 12 million acute cases yearly and actually causing up to 60,000 deaths around the world in a year. A lot of it's regional, so in some places you may be up to 90% of your patients uh, in some locations um, uh, affected by roundworm. Uh, the main diagnosis, uh, diagnostic tool you have, if you have it available, which isn't always an option, is uh, being able to do stool exams for the OFA. So you're going to try to see the, the eggs in the stool. This is the infamous parasitology life cycle. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on these, but there are some, some take-home points from this that will help us as we think about treatment and especially about prevention in these different organisms. Uh, the adult roundworm lives in the intestine, uh, typically in the small intestine, and um, the uh, sheds eggs. A uh, female roundworm will uh, produce up to 200,000 eggs a day, and these are passed into the, the stool. Um, the fertilized eggs are the ones that are infective, and the uh, um, eggs are ingested, so it's a a fecal-oral uh, transmission route for roundworms. And so hygiene becomes very important, and sanitation, and trying to, to reduce the spread of roundworms. Uh, uh, you know, proper sanitation and latrines, and then hand washing and food washing become very important in preventing the, the transmission of the roundworms. Someone says to you that they have passed a worm that looks like our classic earthworm, then that's a roundworm. Uh, it's the only one of these that actually looks uh, like a classic worm when, when we pass it, so that can be really helpful. Uh, clinically, uh, once they're ingested, you can have a migratory phase. It's usually really brief, but you can get cough, fever, uh, shortness of breath, wheezing, and if you do a CBC in that stage, you may see some eosinophilia. But other than that, you're not going to typically see uh, um, an eosinophilia with it. And most infections are asymptomatic. But you can get abdominal pain, poor appetite, uh, some dyspepsia. Uh, roundworms, however, can cause a couple big complications. Uh, one is, you know, those roundworms are pretty big. And if you have a high worm burden, you can get a bowel obstruction. And so in a mission hospital set setting, 
bowel obstruction, you definitely have to think about roundworms if it's in your area. So that becomes a, a really key differential that you'll have in that setting that, that we don't have uh, typically here. Um, also, in children, the, the main uh, burden from this disease is in children, heavy infections lead to malnutrition and growth retardation. So that's the main uh, uh, complication from roundworm. Hookworm, also very common, prevalent worldwide, a billion to a billion and a half uh, infections worldwide. A um, couple different species um, that aren't all that important to know, but makes the talk look smart. Um, and you have ova in the stool, again, as your, your main diagnosis, if you can have a diagnostic test for them. Hookworm also has a life cycle. And again, the worms live in the small intestine, and the um, eggs are passed in the stool. Uh, the difference in the life cycle for the hookworm that becomes really important in, in prevention is that uh, once the eggs are um, in the environment, uh, it goes through the larval stages of development, and the filiform larvae infect humans by penetrating skin. So it's not an ingestion with hookworm, but skin penetration of the worms. So again, sanitation becomes very important. Uh, you know, proper latrines and sanitation as far as dealing with the, the excreted eggs, and then footwear becomes very important is the other big issue, and that's uh, an educational issue. In many places, you know, obviously around the world, we see a lot of kids run around with no shoes on. But it's also a poverty alleviation issue. Maybe they don't have shoes because they just can't. So, um, you know, with hookworm infections, uh, those are some of the strategies we can think about that, that we can learn just by thinking through the life cycle. These are small. This is a magnified view of one of the filiform larvae. So we talk about acquiring them through skin penetration, but they're only about 500 to 600 microns. So pretty small. So it's not you're going to be walking along in your bare feet and say, ooh, I just stepped on a hookworm. I'm going to get hookworm disease. You can't see them and feel them. So uh, footwear becomes real important. Again, they can have a migratory phase, and that's where you can get some pulmonary symptoms. So you know, when you're seeing cough and wheezing, you can try to think of these uh, worm manifestations. Um, but usually it's a brief phase. Um, you can pick up eosinophilia in that phase. The main problem that hookworms cause is anemia. And it's very common among infected children endemically. Um, and it's also an important cause of anemia in pregnancy. So if we're doing uh, um, uh, maternal care, uh, prenatal care, and anemia is a big issue in prenatal care anyway, but in these areas, um, if you have a pregnant woman with anemia, you need to think about, about hookworm. And then whipworm, or trichuriasis, also very common. Again, about 25% of the population worldwide. It also has a life cycle, and it's somewhat similar to the, really more like the roundworm, uh, roundworm life cycle. The worms live in the intestine, the eggs are passed in the stool, and then the eggs embrinate and are ingested. So it's the, the same story as far as prevention through, through sanitation. And this is a whipworm on colonoscopy. And this doesn't show up very well. didn't have a good image. But the thing about whipworms, they get their name because they have a really long tail. kind of looks like a whip-like uh, tail. But this is one that was found uh, in the colon. And that's uh, 
another difference in that the others tend to, we talked about living in the small intestine, whipworm often will be in the colon. Um, the tails themselves even can be about 30 to 45 uh, millimeters, so they're, they're, they're larger. Um, they insert in the wall of the colon rather than the small bowel, and that, that difference leads to some of the clinical differences of abdominal pain. These are more likely to cause diarrhea um, uh, and also blood loss. So again, you can have anemia and heavy infections. And because of the colonic involvement and rectal involvement, uh, heavy infection can lead to rectal prolapse. So if you see you know, a child with rectal prolapse, uh, likely uh, whipworm is the underlying cause. Um, so not real common with whipworm, but it, but it can happen. And it will be a big clue. Strongyloides is another important one I wanted to touch on. It's not nearly as common as the other three. I call the other three the big three. Uh, but it has some important differences, and we will see it. Uh, and that's actually one that we see more so here in the United States than, than the others as well, especially in the southeast United States, although I practice in southern Ohio and ran across strongyloides on a couple of occasions. Um, it uh, also has a life cycle, which we'll look at. And typically, the filiform larvae, it's one of the larval forms, enter through exposed skin. So again, it's a skin infection, not, a, not an ingestion. Um, but it has a, a little thing about its life cycle that you can have auto-infection. We'll talk about that real briefly, um, why that's important. Life cycle is a lot more complicated, and you're not going to get all this down today, but there's some clinical things that are important that we'll take out of it. Um, what happens is the uh, um, adult uh, worms will live in the intestine, and rather than the ova, it's the... Uh, first larval stage, rhabditidiform larvae that are excreted in the stool. And then those will develop into those filiform larvae that infect the skin. And so that, that's how humans are, have ongoing infection. But it, within the body, those, rab, those rhabditidiform larvae can develop into the filiform larvae, so you kind of have an ongoing uh, auto-infection cycle that doesn't require outside infection once it's in the body. So that leads to a more chronic uh, infection. And once the uh, larvae um, are in the body, in addition to living in the intestine, they can penetrate the lungs and the alveolar spaces. And so that can lead to a lot of problems. Um, when the larvae, might, larvae are migrating through the lungs, you'll have you know, cough, shortness of breath, wheezing. And because of this auto-infection, the infection can last for decades. And many times will not be symptomatic. Sometimes you have gastrointestinal symptoms. You can get migrating skin larvae. This one will be much more likely to produce an ongoing eosinophilia. So if you're seeing eosinophilia, strongyloides is, is in your differential. Once someone gets immunocompromised for some reason, they've had this kind of smoldering strongyloides infection for years and not really caused them too much trouble, but you can get a hyperinfection syndrome, and that's where it can be really deadly. Um, Pulmonary involvement uh, becomes a lot more prominent at that stage. You see infiltrates on x-ray, respiratory failure. Um, you can get the intestinal lesions can blossom into something that looks like ulcerative colitis, and you can get sepsis and meningitis. So um, when you're seeing someone with eosinophilia, especially if they're immunocompromised, you know, we need to think about uh, strongyloides if we're in the right area for that. And again, we can see that in the U.S., and I've even seen that in 
patient presenting with respiratory failure and uh, on the ventilator and on bronchoscopy, a little filiform larvae came across and, and there was the diagnosis. So it, it can happen um, and it can be very severe. Pinworm is probably the one that um, in this country we might be more likely to see. Um, basically it causes a lot of perianal skin irritation and even vaginitis in, in little girls. Um, and they'll come in with, with a lot of itching. Uh, and sometimes we see the ova or the really small pin-like worms on the skin. Or sometimes you talk about the scotch tape test where you use a little scotch tape on the, the um, perianal skin and, and you'll, you'll find the pinworms. So treatment. I'm going to skip that slide and go to the next one. Um, the drugs for these intestinal helmets, um, albendazole, and typically dose 400 milligrams a day, um, half that for ages 1 to 2. Mabendazole uh, can be 100 milligrams uh, twice a day for three days or 500 milligrams once. And those will be kind of the main two that we use most commonly. Um, Parental, Pamelweight is another option. Ivermectin for certain ones of these, and thiabendazole um, can also be used. And this kind of gives a breakdown of which of these respond to which treatment. Um, Ascaris roundworms are, are pretty responsive to, to about all of these. Um, and if you really look at this, the, the practicality of it is albendazole covers all of them. And so it's going to be kind of your big gun. And it's uh, fortunately now pretty inexpensively available pretty much worldwide. So uh, bendazole, for the most part, has become the main treatment of choice for these. But bendazole is also widely available. Um, haven't really used much of the others. Um, the one that is a little harder to treat with these, strongyloides, requires a longer treatment with albendazole, and ivermectin's actually been used quite a bit. So if ivermectin's another one to really keep in the back of your mind if you had to have a second-line one, for, especially for strongyloides. Um, just another thing, if you're talking about whipworm, so you've got someone that's got more of the bloody diarrhea and you're really more concerned about whipworm, you need a little bit more extended course of treatment with albendazole. So if you're not completely sure what you're treating, and that's often the case if you don't have the ovum parasite testing, then uh, extending albendazole for three days is not, uh, not unreasonable. So... One of the things that, um, some new concepts to me, um, we're talking about, you know, as common as these problems are, how can we deal with it? And what the WHO has come up with is mass treatment programs uh, for these uh, soil-transmitted helmets. Um, so especially the big three, the roundworm, the hookworm, and the whipworm. You know, each of these are over a billion in infections worldwide, as we've already seen. And... Two billion people, by the time you combine them all, so they're combined infections. A lot of people will have more than one. Uh, that's a lot of people. That's about a third of the world. And what can we do to really deal with this? And they've come up with, uh, WHO's come up with these mass treatment programs. Um, this one didn't come out as clearly as I'd like, but this is some of their educational information. Again, talks about the life cycle. You have the infected individual who passes the, the eggs in the stool, and then... For hookworm through the skin or for the other two through oral transmission, they're ingested and they're infected, and it's just a, a vicious cycle. So we really want to try to interrupt this cycle with good education, and I'll put a uh, plug-in in this talk as well for 
CHA or community health education programs, for those of you involved in those, um, very effective, uh, very helpful programs. And if you're not, I encourage you to look into those uh, for your areas. Um, they address all, all kinds of health topics, not just worms, but that's just one example of a, a disease that, that we can impact with education and, and working with this. But for these, we can also uh, make an impact with some treatment programs. And it takes a little bit of a paradigm shift for me and how we think about treatment. Because in most illnesses, we're talking about eradicating the disease from the individual. And that's what we want to treat. And so we're trying to reduce the number of people who are infected. And the problem is, because of the issues with sanitation, and even though we try to do education and such, they're massive. Most of the people that we treat individually are going to get reinfected. And so the question is, do we, why do we keep treating them? And what you have to remember from what we've been talking about with these diseases is a lot of people are, are asymptomatic. And, but because there are so many people that have it, there's still a big disease burden. And that disease burden is dependent on how many worms a person has. And so if you have a mild case of roundworm, it's really no big deal. Eventually your body's going to clear it. If you have a heavy infection, that's when you're going to get a complication like a bowel obstruction or a child with severe malabsorption and anemia, and the same with the others. So all these depend on, and the effects that we're really trying to deal with are dependent on how, how much, how many worms basically the person has. And so treatment is really not focused on eliminating disease in individuals or reducing the number of individuals that have the disease. The treatment's just about reducing the number of worms each person has. And that's a whole different way of treatment than we usually think about treatment. Um, but again, because the number of worms determines the severity of the disease, that actually becomes a pretty good strategy. Um, it's just a different way that, that we think about. Most of the mass programs are for school-age children. There has been some luck in some of the programs that, you know, trying to target the younger children as well. But for the most part, it's the school-age children that have the highest burden of disease. And they're also the children that we have the most access to. They're in school. We have sort of a captive audience. There are usually other health screenings, public health efforts going on in the schools. And so that's where these programs are mostly targeted. And by doing this, these mass treatment programs, they have been shown to improve weight gain in multiple settings. So if you take a group of children, start a mass treatment program in their school, um, you'll see better weight gain in the children. What we're hoping for is to see improved school performance by improved nutrition and uh, uh, decreasing uh, the prevalence of anemia. Um, in other settings, treating anemia has been shown to improve school performance. In these programs, they, we can't say that they've actually shown that they improve school performance yet. It's a very difficult thing to research and difficult to prove, but that's a hope, but we at least have been able to show better weight gain in the children and better nutrition. So I think it's definitely still worth doing. Most of the programs we talked about, albendazole or mebendazole, are going to hit, hit all the big three. Um, single dose of albendazole, and, and you know, if you're using the properties of mebendazole now, you can get, get to a single dose as well. Um, and basically just administer the dose every three to six months. And... So the question of why are we treating these people? They're just going to get infected again. If you do it on a serial basis, yeah, they may get infected again, 
but you're still going to keep that worm burden low enough that you're not going to have the problems and complications. Uh, we're not going to talk about schistosomiasis in this talk, but um, a lot of the WHO programs in places where schistosomiasis is also an issue will do both at once. Um, so it's a, another good strategy for schistosomiasis as well. So they'll give them albendazole and praziquintel, which is the treatment for schistosomiasis. So if you're in those areas, you'll see that commonly. And the key is just wherever you're working, trying to figure out what's going to work in your area. You know, if the public health um, system has this set up through the schools, that's great. If not, and your mission, whatever your setting is, can be involved in advocating for that. And, and these are issues, I would definitely encourage that. WHO has a whole website, and it's got a whole series of, you know, how to Im implement this program. They put out newsletters occasionally with updates, so it's definitely something that's accessible. The drugs are relatively inexpensive, and so it's really doable, and we can help a lot of people. We're going to switch categories of worms. Tapeworms are in a whole other category from these nematodes. They're in the cestode category for those of us that care about uh, those things. Um, Lots of species of tapeworms, uh, and depending on what the, the main host is, whether it's pork, beef, fish, dog. Most of we require tapeworms, not from the environment in terms of the soil or the skin like the others we've talked about, but it's usually undercooked meat. So when you're in the tapeworm category, we're mostly looking at undercooked meat, whether it's pork, beef, fish, um, with the dog tapeworm, children can get it from fleas from kissing dogs, which, you know, some kids like to play with dogs, so that's a, a little different transmission. And the adult tapeworms also live in the gastrointestinal tract, and we'll look at their life cycle here in a minute. And clinically, you'll usually have some nonspecific GI complaints, or the proglottids, which are the, kind of the segments of the tapeworm, will be passed in the stool. So someone may come in and say they passed something, and well, maybe not look like a, an earthworm, like a roundworm, but but they'll see the proglottids in the stool sometimes, and that can be their presentation. And that's also you can micros microscopically see the ova, or sometimes patients will come in and describe what sounds like a proglottid or bring it in. This is the the pork tapeworm life cycle. The others are similar. There's one big exception in the the pork tapeworm. It has actually two variations on the life cycle which will lead to a couple of different manifestations. We talked about ingesting uh, undercooked meat. And in that undercooked meat are the, uh, the cysts um, uh, from the worms. And so those cysts actually are ingested, and then in the uh, small intestine, um, they develop into the, the worms. And then in the stool, you can pass the um, eggs or the, the proglottids, and they are in the environment. And then in the case of the pig, tapeworm, the pig ingests that. Those eggs develop, and then the cysts are in the, basically in the meat, and if that's undercooked, that's how you get an intestinal tapeworm. With uh, the pork tapeworms, there's another cycle. It's leads to another disease that we're not going to talk about, but um, it's good to see it visually in the life cycle so you understand why we get two different manifestations of the same infection. If the eggs are actually ingested directly by a human, then you have that stage, that cyst stage of the life cycle that actually develops in the human. So it goes to the muscle, and it actually also can go to the, the nerve tissue. And that's where we get a disease called cystic sarcosis, which are where the cysts form in the brain tissue. Seizures. Yeah, seizures. So on the mission field, um, if you're seeing a patient with new onset seizures, 
and you're in a setting where, where tapeworm is even a little bit prevalent, right at the top of your diagnosis will be cystic sarcosis. It's a whole other disease that we're not going to really have time to talk about um, today, but it's a little pearl there. And it was confusing to me for a long time when you talk about, you know, cestoid infections, you've got cystic sarcosis, and you've got intestinal tapeworms, what's the difference? And that's, that's how it works, and it just depends on how it's acquired. So... Tapeworms can be big and long. Again, there's usually not passing the stool, but the segments, segments or proglottids can be. Treatment, and here comes our friend up again, albendazole. So that becomes another nice uh, option. Again, it's a three-day treatment rather than the one-day treatment for some of the others. There are others that have been used, uh, praziquintel, niclosamide, and that data is up there. It depends on your setting, what's available. But... Um, all the doses are pretty well available in the literature, so I've not been spending a lot of time on this. But Another common worm infection that's nice to, to be able to talk about because you can diagnose this visually pretty quickly and, and kind of see it is uh, cutaneous larva migraines. And these are the same intestinal nematodes like the, the roundworm and, and, and hookworm, and they... Um, migrate through the skin, can't complete their life cycle. In this case, it's usually the dog and cat hookworm, so it's a little bit different species. That's the same principle. And again, these are sand exposure. Um, so it's contaminated with dog or cat feces. So different species from the human hookworm that infects the intestine, but it's the same principle that it's acquired through the, through the skin. And that's a common picture of what it looks like. So it looks pretty much like a sound, a little worm migrating through the skin. And so you see that, you can, can diagnose that, and not, not something you might see commonly otherwise. Um, the larva penetrates. A lot of times you get some mild itching, or you might get a few papules at the, the site where it penetrates, and then things kind of subside. And then after a few days... It's so when the, the larva starts to migrate that you actually gets the, get the track and get a lot of itching at that point in the picture that, that we saw. Um, that picture's on a foot. Um, that's a common sight, obviously, because that's more likely where you're going to see the penetration. Question? Yeah. Sir? I've, I've, uh, I've seen that a couple of times in the U.S. and it mm -hmm. always gets misdiagnosed. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah, you will see it sometimes here and you can kind of see how you could potentially diagnose that as tenure because you got the raised edge, and depending on the migration, it can look possibly a little circular. But um, a couple keys you won't have. Usually you have some scale with tenia, um, and usually you won't have that that distinct central clearing as much. I mean, in tenia, you're going to have some erythema. You'll have the accentuation of the border, but the big thing is the scale. So if you see tenia, it's always good to do a scraping to confirm it. That's pretty easy to do with some KOH, and that will also keep you from possibly misdiagnosing a cutaneous larva. Um, the treatment, albendazole comes up again, and that, that works well. It's a three-day treatment. There is a topical treatment if you can get it. Thiobendazole does work topically, and it can be compounded. So if you're in a situation where you can get that, but um, and ivermectin is another alternative. The main topic we were talking about is the, the worms, but we will talk about a couple other parasitic infections that are really uh, 
commonly seen on the mission field and things that we don't learn about as much um, here. The, probably the other big top two that I've, I've seen um, are Giardia and amoebiasis. So there's a little overlap, unfortunately, for those of you here with the diarrhea talk, but we'll talk about these in a little more detail in this one. Um, Giardia is actually a protozoa, um, flagellated, and it lives in the upper small intestine. And infection is through contaminated food and water. So in areas where you have a, a source contaminated with Giardia, you'll see this a lot. Um, very common in overseas settings, but can be common in, in settings in the U.S. You'll see well contamination or sometimes a lake that's contaminated with Giardia. So um, not unheard of here, uh, western mountains and the Rockies, um, but we've seen it in Ohio as well. A lot of people that have Giardia are asymptomatic. And so up to about half the people. So that's one of the reasons it can keep going through a community is that a lot of the people aren't sick, and so this can spread very easily. Um, symptoms, a lot of times are mild. You get some diarrhea, kind of comes and goes, maybe some bloating, some gas. Um, you have recurring episodes of diarrhea. And that's probably the most common manifestation, sort of a chronic come-and-go diarrhea. And that would be something to think about in terms of checking for, for Giardia. can be more severe and give you a malabsorption, uh, statorrhea, um, kind of greasy stools. Um, can be another uh, presentation, though. Um, diagnosis. To diagnose it on stool exams is uh, can be difficult. Um, you'll definitely see um, the cyst excretion, but maybe they're excreted intermittently. So if you're really concerned about Giardia, you got to get about three samples over time uh, before you really can say it's negative. Um, there are stool antigen tests, and most of our labs um, here in the U.S. prefer that. Uh, it's more sensitive. Um, and you don't, you know, you're just going to pick it up more easily and not, not miss it so easily. The downside of the stool antigen test, at least in the labs I've worked with here in the U.S., is that you're just testing for Giardia. So depending on what you're looking for, you know, you might still want a visual ovum parasite exam if you're looking for other things. Then there's the old-fashioned string test that they talked about in the past. Seldom use it today. You just have a little weight, have them swallow the string, bring it up, and then you can examine the secretions from the duodenum, and you'll be able to see the... Uh, Cyst and trophozole, it's a lot easier in the, the duodenal secretions. Um, endoscopy can be useful, duodenal biopsy. If you're having a difficult case of chronic malabsorption and you're concerned about Giardia, it's not going to be something we do necessarily very easily in most mission field settings, but, but can be an option for diagnosis. Treatment, uh, metronidazole is kind of the old standby in 250 milligrams three times a day for five days or five per kilo for the child. Um, a one-dose treatment with tinidazole is available, and tinidazole may be available in some of our mission settings. It has been available in some places overseas for a long time, just more available in the U.S. recently. And abendazole has been used for Giardia as well as sort of a, an alternative um, so, but typical standard drug is going to be your uh, um, metronidazole. The other uh, chronic parasite I want to talk a little bit about um, is 
amoeba, amoebiasis. And the cyst is the infective form. And uh, a lot of people are, um, that are infected are carriers. They may not be ill themselves, but they'll excrete the cyst. And uh, those are what transmits the infection. So again, clean food and water becomes the issue for prevention with amoebiasis. And once they're ingested, the trophozoite stage uh, causes the invasive disease. can be very prevalent in some areas of the developing world. depends on where you are, up to 50% in local concentrations in some areas. And again, a lot of those people may be the asymptomatic cyst carriers, but they keep it going through the community. And you can get uh, large outbreaks, especially in the water supplies. So again, uh, sanitation is your main prevention. With biases, there are a lot of different... Uh, Clinical findings, uh, um, intestinal disease, um, asymptomatic cyst passers. You can get sort of a mild colitis that can be intermittent. Uh, maybe some non-bloody diarrhea, maybe passing a little mucus, abdominal pain. can make it a little bit hard to distinguish from a lot of the other causes of diarrhea because um, it is, can be fairly mild. Um, but if you have someone that you're treating for you know, maybe other bacterial causes of diarrhea not getting better, then amoebiasis has to come into the differential. It can be more of an acute presentation and more like a dysentery, or more of a severe colitis where you're actually getting a bloody diarrhea, more severe abdominal pain. One key in the differential, if you're thinking about amoebic dysentery, is that fever is uncommon. So versus uh, dysentery from Campylobacter or Shigella, which typically give you high fever, if you have someone that looks pretty sick like dysentery, but they don't have a fever, then that might be a little clue to think about amoeba as the, as the source. And sometimes you just get a rip-roaring, fulminant, severe colitis, severe bloody diarrhea. You can get bowel wall necrosis and perforation. You can get uh, a toxic megacolon where the, the colon just basically dilates um, uh, massively, um, which is another thing we'll see sometimes in, in C. diff as well. Um, so there's a definitely a gradation of uh, presentation for amoebiasis. Just like with Giardia, there is now a stool antigen test for amoebiasis, and it's going to be your most sensitive and specific if it's available, not necessarily available in a lot of our mission settings. And then the stool exam to see the cysts and trophozoites. Um, the thing that's difficult is that there are some non-pathogenic species, and so they will look the same uh, on microscopy, and so that can be, be difficult. And could lead to some overdiagnosis. Of course, if you've got a setting where someone is acutely ill with one of these colitis presentations, you're going to treat them and, and not assume that it's the wrong species, but... To eliminate the cyst passers, which is important in trying to, to stop outbreaks, um, the patient's asymptomatic, but we want to get rid of, rid of the cyst stage so they don't continue to infect others, then iodoquinol and paramycin are the, the two main drugs of choice. If you have a colitis or dysentery presentation, then metronidazole becomes the drug of choice. And the difference, the key difference if we're uh, versus treating Giardia is the dose. So if you're 
treating amoebiasis, you definitely have to dose up um, 750 milligrams CID and do that for 10 days as opposed to the GRD dosing of 250 milligrams with a shorter course. Now, that will not clear the cyst passage stage. So once the patient recovers and you've got their acute colitis um, under control, you still need to treat the cyst passage stage, follow up that with um, thiotoquinol or paramycin. There are some other alternative strategies to the metronidazole out there, tetracycline with chloroquine being one that's reported, but metronidazole or tinidazole are going to be your drugs of choice typically. So, got a little bit of time for question, and any of y'all that have had experience with any of these that have pearls or tips to share with the rest of us, we'd appreciate that as well. Yeah? What's your anti-worm medication of choice for pregnancy? Um, good question. Um, you can typically still use the, um, the and and mabendazoles. That's my recollection. Yeah? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and in general, no. I mean, I think if you're in a situation like you're describing where you're doing it so often, then, then that can be. Um, for us, our uh, strategy is always try to work with the local physician. So a short-term king coming in needs to be plugged into the local authorities. Um, they will be able to know, are these kids get, are, is there a good public health school program going on right now? And so you don't necessarily need to treat those kids um, if, if they have access and they're being treated. So doing our best to really plug into the local health care system already is very, uh, it's just a foundation of doing good short-term missions for, for this reason and tons of other reasons. So, um, yeah, I think there could be a concern. I'm not really seeing descriptions of toxicity from overdosing on benzoyl in those settings. But, you know, plugging into what's already going on is important. If you can't plug in to what's already going on, because there is, that typically it means, you know, hopefully it's not because you're not trying, but because maybe there just isn't much going on, then I think you're, you're better off to err on the side of treating. Um, you know, because that, that would tell you that the likelihood, if there's no one for you to plug in with, then there's probably no one that's doing the treatments. And, you know, obviously the long-term ideal plan is helpful and ideal, but... You know, reducing that worm burden still, I think, is going to make a difference, and you can do that even if you treat them for a while. So I think it's reasonable. Yeah? A couple things. What you just said yeah. is really important because we yeah. have a deworming program, yeah. and we have short-term teens who come in, and, and the parents, because they want to, you know, they'll try to keep it. They'll just, oh, no, they haven't had the medicine. Mm-hmm. And so That's another we see a lot problem. of that. Uh, please plug into local. Yeah. The other thing is with the, uh, the albendazole, uh, if you're on short-term teams and you bring meds in with you, they no longer ship to the United States with the abendazole. That's an issue right now. I talked mm-hmm. to MedFarm and, uh, um, and Kingsway also, and, and there are ways to get it in-country. Uh, you'll have to deal with uh, someone more local to be able to bring it in than, uh, mm-hmm. than having it. You're not able to get it shipped to the States now is what I'm saying. Gotcha. That's a good, good pearl. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it seems like I remember vaguely um, something about with these intestinal nematodes that you shouldn't treat during the pulmonary stage because it can cause an inflammatory type reaction. Um, do you know what intestinal nematodes that was referring to? 
Um, I'm not sure. Generally, that's such a, a brief transient thing that, that you're not going to catch it. So I guess if there is a pulmonary stage, um, I'd have to get other advice. I don't know if anyone else is familiar with that or been in that situation. Yeah, yeah with strongyloides, it, it can definitely be an issue um, in the pulmonary stage as well. Yeah. Well, I can definitely. I can answer the second question first. Is no, I wouldn't do albendazole for teams coming home um, because of the transmission. Uh, your chance of picking it up in such a short short stay is very small. So, good food and water hygiene. You know, your team sport are going to be wearing shoes. Um, so, the, it's just such a low risk. I don't re- don't definitely don't recommend that on teams. And from what I've read on albendazole, I think pregnancy is fine. But if anyone has any other knowledge than that off the top of my head. So, Always avoid being yeah. The first trimester. Yeah, with any drug you want to avoid, if you can. But it should be a fine in pregnancy. Yeah. That's a hard question. Um, typically, I don't treat less than a year. Their chance of having acquired it at this stage is so low that, that you're not going to benefit the patient much. Um, most school programs, you know, they're ha- most of the, the main deworming programs are in schools. They're having some that targeted a little bit younger children. Um, probably less than two, even not a huge issue. The other issue you have at that stage is they're not liquids. So and even if you go and look at the WHO stuff, there's a lot of, uh, you know, discussion about, about that because you have to be very careful with choking risk. And, you know, some of the pills are chewable, but even at a young stage, you know, crushing them up and stuff. Um, when you're talking about first doing no harm, a child at that young age is probably not going to have the severe manifestations because it takes a higher worm burden and your risk of causing a choking issue and things like that, you know, you don't want to do. So so be careful about that. Yeah. I, I can't hear, hear the question. Okay. And some of is there syrups now? Good. Yeah, definitely. Uh, if you have the syrup available and you're treating younger children, by all means, you definitely want to avoid that. That, that choking issue. A lot of patients were seeing the, the tablets. Yeah. Do people infected with multiple types of parasites need to treat in any specific way? Um, I'm not aware of any uh, any ones where the order is important. Most of these you're going to get kind of get you know with with the one treatment, especially if you're doing abendazole. So you're kind of treating them all all in the same order. Does anyone have any experience with any particular pearls where that might be an issue? Because I'm not aware of any myself. Other question? Oh, sorry. Yeah. These people in, in the field, of course, these people have this chronic intermittent diarrhea and all these low-grade mm-hmm. symptoms. Of course, if we have it, we give them on a benzoyl pill. We just give it to everybody. But then I'll give them a course of flagell. Mm-hmm. And some of those people get cured. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we call it irritable bowel here in this country. Over there, well, it's presumed to be some kind of worm disease. But do you have any comments about the safety or is that, you know, reasonable approach? Yeah, um, typically if you're dealing with diarrheal illnesses, um, most of the, the worms are not going to be a cause of diarrhea with the exception of the whipworm, which can cause more than acute diarrhea. The way that they can cause diarrhea, though, is if there's a, a malnutrition issue. Um, so malnutrition will, will cause diarrhea chronically. Um, the metronidazole is definitely a, a good 
good thought and a good option because chronic giardia will definitely give you that sort of chronic low-grade intermittent diarrhea. So that probably, if we're trying to treat, treat an infectious cause for that, that's probably going to be top on the list. Um, in areas where there's high warm prevalence, it's not unreasonable to give a dose of, of abendazole for lots of reasons. And then the other thought is thinking about adding zinc. Um, we talked about this in, in the diarrhea talk, but zinc uh, deficiency has been shown uh, to develop very easily in, in diarrheal illnesses, and supplementing with zinc is one of the strategies for preventing the chron preventing those in going into chronic diarrhea. But that, you use the zinc only in the acute case, don't you? Yes and no. I mean, in an acute case, you want to use the zinc, but if it's a chronic case, it could be they haven't recovered because of the zinc issue, so yeah, you would still supplement them. You could still supplement them. So the comment was that in, uh, in India, especially where there's a lot of cutaneous leishmaniasis and leprosy, that skin breakdown makes the patients a lot more susceptible to the hookworm as well. So that's a good good pearl. Yeah. Questions or comments? Well, I trust it was helpful. I appreciate everyone's comments and participation, and uh, we're dismissed. So thank you. Jordan in Peru, he takes the whole country.